We're at the end of the book. What is a healthy church? It's kind of like picking out a melon. What is a healthy melon? How do you know? You know, so there are particular things that the Bible teaches that are evidences of spiritual health. One of them being that there's unity. A healthy church is a church that's unified. There's, there's an abundance of genuine Christian love, which doesn't come naturally. Only the Holy Spirit can, I mean, look around. We are really different in many ways, similar in some ways, but to bring people from all different backgrounds, to bring them together, to overlook one another's faults and genuinely love one another. That's a big deal, and that's part of a healthy church. Another thing that marks a healthy church is to have holy Christians, people who care about sin, people who aren't, when I say holy, I'm not talking about we're a bunch of self-righteous, we're better than those dirty sinners that don't come to church, but people who are dealing with sin, open about it, confessing it, trying to grow and become like Jesus. Another mark of a healthy church is that the people are spirit-controlled, spirit-filled. The fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. And we all long for that, but it doesn't come by trying harder. It comes by yielding to Christ and the Holy Spirit working. So, as, as we saw in the book of 1 Corinthians, they had a lot of problems. Paul had led them to Christ, but they had division, which was the exact opposite of that unity that he wanted. They had immorality in the church. They were suing one another. They had an incestual relationship for which they had not disciplined the guys, so they had blatant sin going on in the church. They also had um, social division in that the rich were exploiting the poor slaves and not including them in communion, not sharing. And then their, their worship services were characterized by chaos and pride and bursting out in, in disorganized speaking in tongues. And there was a lack of concern to build each other up, as well as the fact that they had some major doctrinal problems, like their beliefs were whacked. I remember one saying to me, I really like going to the Unitarian Church because you can believe whatever you want. And, and then she says to me to top it off, but my teenage daughter says, Mom, can't we go to a church where we can believe something? I want to believe something. And if I had any hair, I would have torn it out right then. Like, are you kidding me? Your child is crying out for something to believe. If you're looking for something to believe, you don't need to look any further than this book. This is the God-honest truth. And if you don't believe that, then just pray over it. Jesus said, if any man is willing to do God's will, he will know. The Spirit of God will confirm to your heart that this is the Word of God. And those of us who have become convinced, we've seen its life-transforming power. Many of you are still seeking. Some of you have come to Christ. Some of you are planning to get baptized. We have a baptism class next hour out in that back room. We just baptized nine people. God is working. The Spirit of God is changing people's lives. Many of you, you know what's going on. You're struggling. You're trying to raise your kids. You're trying to get along with your spouse. You're trying to pay your bills. You're trying not to hate politicians. You're trying not to hate, and, you know, I can't even imagine the rage that, that um, African Americans would feel after that shooting, the, the rage that the parents down in that school would feel towards, you know, why? And yet, we can either blame God or we can understand that God is permitting these things to draw people to Christ, not because He hates us, but because He's working out His will. So, we're at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians, 
And interestingly, we're going to begin in verse 13, and it really only has two sections. It has some closing guidance for the body, and then it has some closing greetings for the body. Now, what's interesting is, somebody once said, after you go to seminary, it takes about four or five years to talk in a way to communicate and people can understand you. So I had to write something down that I thought was funny. I, I read this. This passage is a seriatum full of a perinesis. And I was like, say that again? A seriatum full of perinesis. A seriatum is a list and perinesis is guidance. So why the guy didn't just say, it's a list of guidance? Well, I don't know, but that really is what it is. Paul's closing remarks. Now remember, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. These aren't just like, whatever, you know, let me throw a couple things in. The Holy Spirit, remember the Bible was written by men, but God superintended them. All scripture is inspired by God. And so each word that, that came from these authors' mouths was guided by the Holy Spirit. And so there's nothing wasted here. And it's important for us to read the Bible. Now, while all Scripture is profitable, some more profitable than others, I wouldn't encourage you to waste the time of memorizing chapters of genealogies. There are more important Scriptures. But nevertheless, passing over passages like this, we can miss, miss some really important stuff. So let's start with the closing guidance that Paul gives to the body. Now remember, sometimes we tend to read the Bible personally like it's just me and Jesus. It's never just you and Jesus. It's always Jesus and us. Jesus and the family, Jesus and the community, Jesus and the body. Those of you, I think we have at least 60 computers that are still watching us regularly online. Please, if there's, if there's no good reason for you to come back to the fellowship, get in church. I know it's more convenient to watch it on TV, but that's not a good reason not to be part of the body. The Bible says, let us not forsake the assembling together. And I think in some ways this has weeded out. You know, when people say, oh, we got to get back all the people we lost. Well, sometimes Jesus taught that there will be those who will fall away. So we're not judgmental in saying if people aren't coming, it's because they're a bunch of weaklings. Because there are reasons why people can't come. But those of you who aren't coming, sort that out. Is it a good sound excuse or an excuse that sounds good? So let's pray and then we'll look at this closing guidance. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit... He will speak to us. We all need to hear this. We ask that your word will, will feed us and strengthen us and awaken us and challenge us. And we pray that Jesus will be lifted up and draw people to himself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing Paul's going to give us is a call to caution. Caution to the Corinthians. Now remember, he's just, after writing this book, he's not just like, well, let me just make up some ideas. Closing down this book, start with me in verse 13. He says, be on the alert. Be on the alert. That, that Greek word is the word from which we get the name Gregory, Gregoreo, which means to be watchful. And, it, and, it's, and it's regularly translated watch. So when Jesus says, watch and pray, be watchful, be careful, be circumspect, the King James says, watch pay attention. So I, I had an analogy of this this week. I was walking in a, in a, in a woods, kind of on a, a, the side of a cliff, and the, the woods were so thick as I was stepping out, I, I 
peeled back the woods, and there was a big hole. I couldn't even see down. It was about that big around, and I'm thinking, wow, if I didn't see that, that could have got real ugly. My foot probably would have gone all the way down inside that, and who knows um, how that would have ended. So thankfully, I just happened to be watching carefully. But what an important reminder. Sometimes people want to come to church and learn something new. Teach me a new Hebrew word. Sometimes it's not what we don't know. It's what we do know that we need to be reminded of. And the Christian life involves careful watching for a number of things. First of all, we need to watch against Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober and be vigilant. Pay attention because the enemy, Satan, prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's after your kids. He's after your family members. He's after your spouse. And he's after you. And he's after me. And we're supposed to be thinking and praying. Jesus said, watch and pray that you don't enter temptation. And we should do this every day when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. The same prayer that says, give us this day our weekly bread. No, no, our daily bread also says, lead us not into temptation. So, so we watch, first of all, carefully and think, you know, where are those thoughts coming from? You can't prevent a bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from making a nest. Satan can sow seeds of bitterness in your heart. Paul says, let not the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the devil have a place. We also need to watch for pride. Paul said in, in chapter 10, therefore, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. And so we have to examine ourselves and make sure that we're not thinking that we got this and, and, and we're so independent of God rather than expressing our constant need for him. So we watch also for persecution. Be on the watch. Right now, we're in a really dangerous place in our culture. I know some of you can't imagine it, but it shouldn't be that hard to imagine that there are some things about the Christian faith that could quickly become illegal, right? Things that we can or can't say, things that we can or can't do. It may start with the school system where, where the government will say, unless you endorse these lifestyles and these morals, we cut off your loans, we cut off your accreditation. And even as we've seen in Canada and, and, and other places, they may, they may really put the squeeze on us. Right now, Christians all over the world are being persecuted, so we ought not to think we're an exception forever, but we watch and we pray. Another thing we have to watch for is not just pride, not just persecution, but pretenders in the church Many people fall into sin, not because of somebody they met at the bar, but somebody they met at the Bible study. Second Peter chapter 3 says, be careful, lest being away, being led astray by the conduct of unprincipled people, you fall from your own steadfastness. Young people, be careful, even if you're in a Christian school or a Bible study, don't assume that everybody has pure motives and they're here to do what's right. And so Paul, Paul, particularly those of us who are leaders, are called to watch over the church. He, he said, be on your guard for savage wolves will rise up from among yourselves seeking to lead the flock astray. So it's, it's, a, it's a sense of saying, okay, I just need to examine myself on a regular basis. Paul said to Timothy, pay attention, 1 Timothy 4.16, 
to your beliefs and your behavior. Because as you do so, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. So we need to learn what the Bible teaches. We need to learn how to communicate the gospel. Not just Jesus loves me and ask Jesus into your heart, but what is the gospel? And, and, and what does the Bible say about these various things that are being taught in our culture? So he starts with a call for caution. Just, just, and, and for some of you, this is God speaking to your heart. And he spoke to my heart about it. Like, wake up, Tom. Pay attention. Be more circumspect. Take it one day at a time. And think about your priorities. Think about your values. Think about what you're doing with your social media. And by all means, families, I beg you, watch for your kids. If you were not able to be here for the seminar that we had on protecting young eyes, you need to talk to uh, Pastor Jeremy. We have some resources. How many of you were here? If you saw that, you would be like, oh, my word. And it's incredible how many parents are just giving out phones to their kids and have no idea of the destruction and the danger that Satan is, 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 is invoking in the hearts of our people. So watch, a call to caution. Number two, a call to conviction. He says, stand firm in the faith. Now, when the Bible uses the word faith, it uses it two ways. Sometimes it uses it as our personal trust in God. So we're called to have faith. In fact, if you want to get to heaven, it's not by works. The Bible says by God's grace, we are saved through faith, right? We put our trust in Jesus Christ. But when the Bible uses the words the faith, it's not talking about your personal faith. It's talking about the Bible, okay? So, for example, in the book of Jude, it says we must contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints, so when he says stand firm in the faith, he's talking about the Christian doctrines of the gospel. And why is he telling them to stand firm in the faith? Because we just read in chapter 15 that some of them were going, yeah, I'm a Christian, I just don't believe in the resurrection. Well, do you not see that happening today? Yeah, I'm a Christian, but, but I believe there are many ways to get to heaven. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I believe that Jesus isn't God. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I believe that men can marry men. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I believe that it's okay to have sex before you're married. I'm a Christian, but I, I think that abortion, we have a right to do that. I mean, does it not ring in your heart to say we need to stand firm in the faith and to hold to our convictions? We have to get past the idea that everybody's going to like us. Mark this down. If you're going to follow Christ, everyone's not going to like you. In fact, if everyone likes you, Jesus said, be careful when everyone speaks well of you, because all who will live godly in Christ, the Bible says, will be persecuted. So you can certainly get along with everybody. Just keep your mouth shut, nod your head, and go yes, yes, and agree. Now, what, the last thing we need is a bunch of obnoxious Christians on Facebook saying hateful things. But what we also do need is Christians who will stand for their convictions, no matter who it is, come hell or high water, whether it's your spouse or your kid. Some of you have been shocked when you have taught morals to your kids, and, and then they turn around and they say, you're being hateful. Why are you judging my friends, telling them that that behavior is wrong? Why are you so hateful? And you're shocked. 
Remember, I think it was Tabidi who once said, if you send your kids to Caesar for public school, don't be surprised if they come back Romans. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that public school is giving your kids over to the devil. But what I am saying is we need to pray and work hard to infuse within our children Christian convictions and to help them to, to see that there is a right and wrong. And regardless of what the majority of their peers are doing, we are called more than ever to stand for our conviction. Now, let me be careful here. There's a difference between personal convictions over minor doctrines and doctrinal convictions that, that, are, that are absolutes, okay? So, you may have a personal conviction about speaking in tongues, or you may have a personal conviction about whether alcohol is right or wrong. That's not what I'm talking about here. I heard a missionary say it this way. He goes, my convictions are bullets. And I thought, oh, you, can you just list them? He goes, nope, they're not bullet points. They're doctrines for which I would take a bullet. I wouldn't take a bullet for whether Jesus comes before or after the tribulation. But I hope by God's grace I would take a bullet for whether Jesus is Lord. And if we're called, Jesus said, do not fear them that kill the body, but fear him who can kill your body and put your soul in hell. We have to think through, do I believe this is the word of God regardless of my culture, if I lose my marriage, if I lose my job? I want to stand firm in the faith. I want to cling to the gospel. And I'll just say this. When you hear people talk about progressive Christianity, throw it in the garbage. How could it possibly be progressive? It's the faith that's once for all delivered to the saints. It's not our job to change it or to suddenly go, oh, we weren't reading it the right way. It's really like this. Has God deceived his church for 2,020 years and now suddenly people have figured it out? It's the grand old gospel of Christ. And our job is to simply stay true to the Bible. So he calls them at the end to hold on to the gospel. And Satan wants you to doubt it. Some of you are on the verge of falling away. This happens all the time. The Bible says in the last days, many will fall away from the faith. And there are a whole lot of people who, who I've seen get baptized. Where are they now? Jesus said, many receive the word with joy, but when trouble comes, they fall away. Are you all in? Are you committed to Christ? Or are you a fair-weather friend? As long as you have health, wealth, and prosperity, Jesus is your genie versus Jesus gave his life for me and I'm bought with a price. And because of what he did for me, I want to hold on to the gospel. And I get it. We struggle. We have doubts and fears and, and you want to give up, but stand firm in your convictions. 30 has a call to courage. He has a call to courage. You see, maybe some of you heard that a while back, Cairn canceled their social work program. And, and, it, and there were a variety of reasons from that. And one of them, a, a large one, was financial. But we received unbelievable persecution. The president was absolutely reamed out. And, and it was startling it was stunning and it was painful to see the comments that were sent to him by alumni, including alumni who would say things like this, you're homophobic and I'm a practicing homosexual and I think you canceled the social work program because you're homophobic. But one of the ones that stood out to me was someone who said, I am a high-ranking policy writing social work official in Philadelphia. 
and I have no problem being a Christian there, and I don't have any problems. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet when that next policy that absolutely contradicts the Bible is proposed, that you raise your hand and you say, I'm against that. I think that goes against God, and I don't think we should do that. You can fit right in and be a Christian, just keep it on the lowdown and be an undercover agent. Say nothing. Witness by your life. But that's not why the world hated Jesus. He said, the world hates me because I testify that it's evil. And so, yeah, you could fit in at work. You could sign off and go, well, you know, I'm just a man under authority. I'm just, or you could say, no, I, I, I don't believe that. And no, I won't endorse that because I believe the Bible teaches that's wrong. And when you're called hateful and judgmental and so forth, you go, look, don't shoot the messenger. I just believe that Jesus is Lord and the Bible's his word. So it's a call to courage. Look what he says. Act like men and be strong. Now, the word act like men, it's, it's an interesting word because usually it's translated be strong. In fact, in the Septuagint, this is, this is the word. It comes from a root word of man, but it's, it's translated be strong. So in, in the Psalms, in the Septuagint, it says be strong and let your heart take courage. So I think what he's calling for here is for us to be courageous. He says, be courageous and be strong. Like, Christianity is not for the faint of heart. It's difficult because we're going against the majority. And there's a tremendous pressure to cave, like even to our kids as they wear us down, right? And to go, fine, whatever. Do what you want. As opposed to saying, no, God, give me the strength. Give me the courage. Give me the love to be strong and courageous. Even in relationships, we have to be strong and courageous, not just walk away because someone hurt my feelings, but be willing to talk to them, be willing to come to them, be willing to, to address issues. And so ask God to give us courage as Christians in a time where it's so easy to cave and be fearful. So a call to caution, a call to conviction, a call to courage. And then maybe the most important one, a call to charity. I love this phrase. Let all that you do be done in love. Here's what I'm going to ask that we all do this week. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to put it on my refrigerator. Let all that you do be done in love. Well, what will that look like? Well, let's start with your family relationships. Love is patient. We saw that in chapter 13. Love is kind. Love doesn't keep records of wrongs. Love is not selfish. Love doesn't brag. Love endures all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And so then he says, let all that you do be done in love. And so as we go through this week, let's ask ourselves, did I relate to my spouse? Was, did I do that in love? As I, as I prepared myself to do some ministry, did I do that in love? It's really not God's priority what you believe and what you do, but also why. Paul says, even if you give all your money, even if you have all knowledge, even if you have all faith, if you don't have love, it's nothing. So may God help us to be loving Christians. 
Sometimes Christians can be very obnoxious. Our goal is not to win these little skirmish arguments. Yeah, well, whatever. The Bible says the servant of the Lord must be gentle and not quarrelsome. The wisdom from above is reasonable and merciful. Oh, to God that we would be loving. Pray for us to be loving. Over and over again, the Bible says, be fervent in your love. Above all things, put on love. That's the perfect bond of unity. Pray that God will make us a, a church that's, I, I believe that our love is growing, that there's a genuine affection for one another. But love is not a quiver in the liver. I'm going to tell you right now, those of you who are struggling in your marriage and thinking, what did I get into? God didn't call you to marry who you love. God called you to love who you marry. That's what you said when you got married. I solemnly swear to love you. And that was the easiest thing you ever did when you said, I do. The hardest thing you ever did is to do it. So for those of you that are struggling in your marriage, what would it look like to not say, oh, I'll change when they change, but to say, God, give me grace to love my spouse. Give me grace to love my kids. Give me grace to love that difficult person. Give me grace to love my enemies, to love, to love and pray for the leaders of this country. Give me grace to love my church. Let all that you do be done in love, a call to charity. And then his last seriatum of perinesis <laughs> is finally a call to cooperate with your leaders. So Paul is in Ephesus when he's writing this letter. We saw the map last week. He's writing to the church in Corinth, but with him are three people from the church in Corinth, and these were leaders. So these leaders from Corinth were with Paul, and Paul's writing this letter, and he's going to send it back to them. But this is a great word of advice for us to cooperate with our leaders. Look what he says. He says in verse 15, now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, meaning this guy and his family were the first converts when he got to Corinth. And they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the works and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunaeus and Achaeus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. So, he, he says something interesting. He says in verse 15, you know the household of Stephanus. Now, technically, that word could be translated, know them. And then, down in verse 18, it's a form of the same word when it says, acknowledge them. Gnosko, epigonosko, know them, know them. What does he mean by that? He says, be in subjection to them, recognize them, cooperate with them. And he says, and not only with them, but with all who help in the work and labors. In other words, God has designed Christianity to have leaders. And leaders aren't better than the people. They're not, we don't have special hotlines where God's like, oh, you're a leader. You have a privileged position. 
In fact, he says, if you're going to be a leader, you need to be humble and you need to be a servant. But he also says to his people, work with your leaders. In fact, in Hebrews 13, it says, obey your leaders, submit to them. They keep watch over your souls, and one day they must give an account to God. So let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that wouldn't be profitable for any of you. Now, I don't have an axe to grind here. I think we have a good, solid church, and, and as leaders, we've made mistakes, and we will continue to make mistakes. But even as, as we just proposed what we're considering about Austin, we're trying to have a very open dialogue here. We're not trying to pull a fast one. As Brother Don was sharing, we have a search committee, but we are interested in Austin, but it's a church decision. It's not, we don't just go, this is what we're doing. But as you move forward, of course you're going to disagree with your leaders at times, but work with them, pray for them, dialogue with them, let us know what you're thinking. We're excited Austin and, and the elders have, have, have reported such great news as we've had these many meetings where, where we're dialoguing, hearing from you, and that's a healthy thing. So, but notice what Paul says about, about Achaeus. He says they've, or, or Stephanus, he goes, they devoted themselves to ministry to the saints. You know what the King James says? They're addicted to ministry. Boy, I'd love to be a part of that addictions program. Hi, my name's Tom and I'm an addict to what? To serving Jesus and people in the gospel. I'd love to have every one of you become an addict to the ministry, right? They've devoted themselves. They, as they received the gospel of grace, were so changed by the Lord and so grateful for that, that they're like, our home, our time, our money, we just want to help the church. And I thank God, I, I can think of many of you that I would say, we got lots of People like that in our church. They've just, and, and this is not preaching. This is not, oh, you have to sell your stuff and become a minister. But, but it's clear that your priority is the kingdom of God and the gospel of Christ. Recently, I was talking to someone. He says, you know, he says, my wife and I, when we get home in the evening, we have our dinner together. And he goes, and then we just talk about our studies and our church and what's going on in people's lives. You, you feel that? Some of you are like, really? You talk about the church? Why would you do that? You know, you saw them on Sunday. Hey, how you doing? But people who are addicted to the ministry, you, and think about our elders and the site. They're not getting paid all these extra meetings. We actually have two meetings a month now. I hate meetings. I'll just put that out there. They're, they take good ideas in dark alleys and choke them out. But they're necessary. They're important. They're valuable. And, and I don't think any of us go, ooh, I hope we can have another meeting. But, but the idea is that, that God is working. So let's pray that we can have good quiet. And if you hear people talking about your leaders, right? Do the right thing to say to them, hey, have you talked to the leaders? Have you gone to them? Because if you haven't gone to them, you shouldn't be talking about them. And that's not to say that we are without. If, if, come to us, right? If, if you want to question us, it's not like we're perfect people. But we're so grateful that God is working here. So, that's basically the, the, the seriatum of paranesis. Now, let's go quickly to the closing greetings. Because again, there's just some cool little details in there that Paul's going to give us. Beginning in verse 19. It was common 
Back then when you wrote an epistle, which was the wife of an apostle. Now, an epistle was a letter, right? You, 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 you started with your name, which is like, why don't we do that? Remember when you used to get handwritten letters? If it was more than one page, you don't even know who wrote it, right? If they didn't put it on the, on the envelope, you're like, who is this from? So they did it the other way. They put their name up first, Paul. You're like, okay, I know this is from Paul. And then at the end, they would give greetings. But usually when you're reading these epistles, the greetings relate to things that he've said in the letter. So the first thing that I want you to note in this greeting is that greetings strengthen our relationships to God and to one another. Think about this. Greetings. Something as little as a greeting. We, we try to teach our children this, right? Mr. Wilson comes in, and remember Dennis the Menace? I'm dating myself. Some of you are like, yeah, I remember this. You young people, just Dennis the Menace. Google it. You'll, you'll, you'll get a kick out of it. So Mr. Wilson and Dennis didn't get along. So Mr. Wilson would come over, and Dennis wouldn't say hi to him because he didn't like him, right? And after they left, Dennis's mom would say, you should be nice to Mr. Wilson. You should have given him a greeting. He said, why? I don't like him. Well, that would be, a, I'd be a hypocrite because if I said hi to him and I don't like him, I'm being a hypocrite. Would you go, you know, that's a good point. So from now on, don't say, say hi to people if you don't like them. No, of course not. You would train your child. Well, greetings, as, as, as insignificant as they seem, they matter because people matter. And when you greet someone in a way that, that you're trying to, to express to them that you care about them, that, that, that novel thought, that you thought about them, right? I remember one of my daughters when I would call her when she was down visiting with her cousins at my brother's house. I'd say, do you miss me? And she'd go, Dad, not really. And I'd say, then just lie. Just say you do. Make me feel like you do. So notice, even in these greetings, there's some precious things. Paul says, the churches of Asia greet you. The churches of Asia greet you. By keeping churches aware of one another, it strengthens the relationships. Do we ever think of other Bible-preaching churches in this area? I mean, could you name five Bible-preaching churches in this area alone? And do you ever pray for them or pray for their leaders? So even little things like greetings. So greetings of churches, but then personal greetings. Notice he says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily. Now, the Greek word there is much or many. So, so he goes, you know, Aquila and Priscilla were there with Paul, right? And he goes, they greet you heartily. So when Paul's writing, he goes, you know, the churches in Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you. No, tell them we really miss them. Like a, a hearty, genuine greeting. Now, now think about that. Something as personal as when, when you see somebody when they come here, right? Now, you don't have to get ridiculous like a new puppy jumping up and down. I remember a buddy of mine, he came over and my dog was so excited to see me. He goes, I wish my wife would be that excited. I said, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but we could do better than just like, how you doing? Yeah. Good to see you. What's your name again? We're cousins. I'm Jim. Remember, we're cousins, right? So, so when you come here, the Bible says, greet one another with, with a kiss of love. Now, that was a cultural thing. I'm not expecting you to kiss each other on the cheek, but it matters, right? And how many times have you heard me to say, look around and go up and say hi to somebody. 
Don't look at them like, excuse me, do you not know this is my row? <laughs> excuse me? Um, what are these? People have said this to me. I liked it better when we were smaller, right? And you know what? I've shocked them because I go, yeah, me too. But that's not what we're here for. We're not here for what we like better when we're smaller. We're like, oh, we know everybody. We're here to reach people with the gospel. We're here to unleash and equip and see God's people growing and serving and multiplying and expanding the kingdom. So these personal greetings... They really do strengthen the churches and they strengthen relationships. And so one of the things I want you to think about is as you spend a few moments with people here, ideally try to connect with them beyond that. Hey, you want to get coffee sometime? Or, hey, we'd love to have you guys over. Or um, something as minimal as, how could I pray for you this week? And then if you see them next week, hey, how's it gone? And if you can remember their name and then, hey, I'm praying for you. I prayed about that. How did that go? It's really exciting. So, so these personal greetings, he says, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So he starts with this premise, greeting strength in relationships. But notice, out of the blue, he gives a warning. In the midst of greetings, he gives a warning. And it's a very sober warning. And I don't want you to miss this because this is a big deal. Look what he says here. This greeting is with my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed, Maranatha. Wait, what? All this love, all this warm fuzzies, you know, kumbaya. By the way, if you don't love the Lord, cursed are you. May God throw you in the lake of fire. You're like, wow, Paul, why all the aggression? Well, think of the context here. First of all, let me just say this. The phrase to love the Lord Jesus Christ is just another way of saying you're a believer. Okay? Maybe you've never thought about this. Remember in Romans 8 when it says, all things work together for good to those who love God? Do you think there's a subclass of Christians that that's talking about? Yeah, they're Christians, but they're Christians who don't love God. All Christians love God, Right? How could we not love God? We don't love God because we're, we're noble people. We love God because we're broken people and we respond to the gospel. We love him because he first loved us, right? So, so what Paul is simply saying here is, when I came to you, you responded to the gospel. You repented and believed in Christ. And so you are God's children. You are forgiven. But now... I am finding that some of you are severely opposing me and you are refusing to listen to me. So mark this down. I'm writing this with my own apostolic hand. And if you don't submit to Jesus, you're going to go to hell. And I don't like to say that, but I don't want to go to a doctor who's going to butter it up. I want to hear the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And frankly, there are many people who say, I love Jesus but they won't do what he said. And Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So in essence, what he's calling for is simply a repentance to put their faith in Christ. People have been moving away from the gospel. So he said in Galatians 1, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be under the curse of God. He, you go, how can people be so passionate about this? I was talking to Austin and Davia. Maybe you heard this story. But 
in, in the town where her family was from or somewhere in that region in Germany, when the Reformation came to that area, the pastor who had heard the gospel directly from Luther and had gotten saved, as he brought the gospel back to his community, he said this. He said, when I die, I want to be buried in, under this pulpit so that if anybody stands up and starts preaching a different gospel, I'm going to come out of my grave and choke him, right? <laughs> Galatians 1, if anyone preaches a different gospel, he's under the curse of God. So ask yourself this. Do you love the Lord? I'm not asking do you have fond affections and warm fuzzies and, and you cry when you hear Jesus loves me. But have you understood that Christ shed his blood on the cross so that you could be spared from hell, so that you could be a new creation, you could be completely forgiven, you could have a promised home in heaven. You could have a purpose in this life, and you can have a secure destiny. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ died and rose again? If you say that you do believe that, then love the Lord. And how do you love Him? You do what He said. So start with baptism. I still don't get some of you go, yeah, I'm saved, yeah, I'm saved. I'm just not getting baptized. That doesn't mean you're going to hell. But if you love him, and that's what Paul's saying, as I've pleaded with you guys to stay out of idols' temples, to stop fornicating, to start showing love, to stop being divisive, let me just lay it out there. If you're going to still resist me, then you need to examine yourself and figure out whether you're a Christian. So here's the good news. You don't have to go back and repair everything you did wrong because while you're still breathing, you can come to the Lord. You could come today. You could say, you know, I don't know. I mean, I know I raised my hand a long time ago, but did it ever kind of reach my heart where I was moved to change my life out of gratitude to Jesus? Where I felt as though because Christ died for me that his love changed me to the point I'm like, what will you have me to do, Lord? How can I live in response to your grace? Take my life and let it be lived for you. Only you and the Holy Spirit can answer that, but I urge you, seal that today. If you're not sure, you say, I don't know, but I, but I, but I want to. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I won't cast them out. So we're here to talk to you. We'd love to help you to become sure of your salvation, forgiven from your past. And, and, and I can only tell you this. Look at the last verse, or verse 23. Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The last thing we learn from this passage is this. God's grace sustains our relationships to God and one another. That's it. God's grace is the only thing that can sustain our relationships to God and one another. When we sing, he will hold me fast, believe that. He that began a good work in you will perform it in the day of Christ. So may God remind you, the beginning of most of Paul's letters, he says, may God's grace be to you, right? We receive the grace of God as we hear his word and we, we're reminded of this excellent, perfect, complete sacrifice of Jesus, his powerful love for us, his willingness to call us and keep us and hold on to us. But then we're like, I'm down here struggling. I'm down here struggling. And so at the end of the letter, he starts with grace to you. Then he feeds them the word of God. And then at the end of the letter, he goes, 
grace with you. Grace with you. And now, may God's grace through Jesus Christ be with you. May Jesus' presence be real to you. And may his strength continue to sustain you. Join us this Friday for our prayer meeting as we're asking God to do amazing things. Some of you need healing. You need change. You need help. This nation, our church, join us as we pray and worship this Friday. Let's bow together. Father, I believe the Holy Spirit is working through his word. I pray that some people this morning will be awakened to life. If that's you, whoever God's speaking to your heart, right now just say, Jesus, I love you because you first loved me. I believe you. Take me. Forgive me. Heal me. Help me. Lord, thank you for this church. As we move forward, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be abundantly upon us. Keep us as we watch and pray for one another. And God bless my brothers and sisters as we greet each other after this service. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.